Last week, we considered Jesus' character as he's presented to us in the Gospels. Jesus gets tired, hungry, and thirsty. He experiences real human emotions like love and anger, joy and sorrow. And yet, for all that, the Gospels do not present us with a full caricature or character sketch of Jesus. Instead, they, they show us Jesus in action. And we have to discern who Jesus was, what Jesus was like based on what he says and what he does. But there's one other way that we can gain insight into Jesus' heart and mind and imagination. And that is through the stories that Jesus told. Jesus was a master storyteller. His preferred way of communicating was telling stories in the form of parables. And he told over 40 of them in the Gospels. Now, the word parable comes from the Greek word meaning to throw alongside, to throw alongside. And it's related to the word in math, a parabola. So if you remember high school geometry, a parabola is a perfectly symmetrical U-shaped curve where each point on the curve perfectly corresponds to another. And that tells you something about a parable because Jesus draws these stories from everyday life, and therefore there's no gap between the story and everyday life. There's a perfect correspondence, and he throws these stories alongside in order to reveal to us who we are, what God is like, what God is doing in our lives, and how we are supposed to respond to him. So he was a pro, and this was a unique aspect of Jesus's ministry. If you look at the apostles who followed Jesus, they did many of the same things. They would preach and teach like Jesus did, Some of them would give sermons. Some of them even healed like Jesus did. But only Jesus told stories. Only Jesus came up with these parables. Now, if you think about it, and maybe you never have reflected on this, but if you stop and think about what these parables suggest, they reveal that Jesus demonstrated a constant insight into and empathy with the ordinary things of human experience, covering a wide range of activities and events. Everywhere Jesus looked, everything he saw, everything spoke to him about God and God's work in the world. So farmers sowing seeds, women kneading bread, children playing in the marketplace, sheep wandering away, sparrows falling to the ground, little plants sprouting out of the dirt. Neighbors knocking on the door at midnight or thieves breaking in to steal. People racking up all kinds of debts. People looking for work or dishonest managers losing their job. Lazy judges neglecting their duty. Travelers getting beaten and mugged on a lonely road. Kings going out to war or kids running away from home. See, everything Jesus saw, everything he witnessed, everything he experienced spoke to him about God and God's work in the world and he turned him into stories and threw him alongside in order to wake us up to the reality of who God is. Now, today we're going to turn to what is perhaps the most famous of Jesus' parables. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two lost sons. It could equally be called the parable of the father's love. And though it is familiar to many of us, I would suggest that we often fail to see how subversive it is. 
Most of us think that this is just a heartwarming story about how God will love and accept us no matter what. But Jesus did not tell parables in order to warm our hearts. He told parables in order to subvert and to shatter our pre-existing way of thinking. And he tells this parable in order to explode our normal human categories for how we think we're supposed to approach and respond to God. So let's see what we can learn from this parable. Now, other parables that Jesus tells are at least partly inspired by an image or a story from the Old Testament. We might read in the Old Testament of God as a shepherd or Israel as a vineyard, but not this one. This parable is all Jesus. This is vintage Jesus. And so through this parable, Jesus shows us at least three things. He shows us that there are two different kinds of people. There are two different ways of getting lost, but there's only one way home. There's two different kinds of people. There's two different ways of getting lost, but there's only one way home. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Luke chapter 15. You'll find this passage printed beginning on page 874 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the fatted calf. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, some of you may find this hard to believe, but about 20 years ago, this church was as good as dead. The congregation had dwindled down to next to nothing. The church had run out of money and the building was literally, literally falling apart. And the pastor at the time was a self-proclaimed agnostic, maybe a Unitarian at best. And believe it or not, I actually sat where you were sitting. I sat in those pews and I heard him deliver a sermon from this very pulpit. And it was on this parable. Now you would think, as I did, despite what I had heard, you can't possibly screw this up. This is Christianity in a nutshell. The gospel just oozes out of this passage. But he found a way. And let me explain how. The gist of the sermon was essentially his personal story. He talked about how he had grown up downstate in southern Illinois in a Christian family. He was raised in the Christian faith. And then he went off to New Haven. And that's code for Yale. He went off to Yale. And he lost his faith. And the punchline of the sermon, and I kid you not, the punchline of the sermon was, I'm the prodigal son, and I'm not coming home. <laughs> exactly. So now you understand why there were so few people in the pews. And let me see if I can do this parable a little bit more justice from this pulpit 20 years later. But I can assure you that that was not the point that Jesus was trying to get across. Now, the first thing that Jesus shows us is that there are two kinds of people. Now, context is everything. So what is the context in which Jesus delivers this parable? We'll look at the top of the chapter. In Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, Luke tells us that tax collectors and sinners, notorious sinners, were drawing near to Jesus but in response, the religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, were grumbling about him. They say that Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with them. And because that's the context, Jesus proceeds to give three parables. First, the parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and thirdly, the parable of the two lost sons. So in verse 11, Jesus begins by saying, a man had two sons. So right from the get-go, he's tipping us off that this is a parable about two sons who get lost, not just one. So these two sons represent two different kinds of people. The younger brother represents the tax collectors and the sinners, the people who are gathering around Jesus, the people who have transgressed all the moral boundaries and who are notorious for it. And then the older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, the, the people who are very, very careful to make sure that they color within the lines. And both sets of people represent two different approaches to life. The older brother represents moralism. The younger brother represents libertinism. The moralist is someone who pursues a path of moral conformity. The moralist believes, well, if I believe the right things, if I do the right things, well, then God is obligated, God is obligated to bless me and to make sure my life goes well because I've done my religious duty. 
The libertine, by contrast, pursues a path of self-discovery. The libertine says, well, look, in order to be happy, I've got to be free. I've got to be free to do whatever I think is best, live my life however way I want. And if there is a God, well, then God will accept me because God has to accept everybody. Now, some of you may know that my first job out of college was for a bank right here in New York City. And I loved my job. I loved the people that I worked with. But I felt over time, increasingly, that God was calling me to enter the ministry. And so the funniest day at the office, by far, was the day that I notified my bosses that I had applied to seminary and I was going to become a minister. And I could see that one of my bosses was very confused by this news. The, the wheels were clearly spinning in his mind. He's looking at me with this puzzled look on his face. And, and he's probably thinking, I, I know Jason. He's a smart person. He's no, he knows what he's doing. So maybe he's got some angle on this. And therefore, he blurts out, can you make money doing that? <laughs> and I had to explain that wasn't exactly the purpose. But uh, from that moment on, he nicknamed me Rev, Reverend Jason. So I was Rev around the office for the last few months I was there. But after notifying Jack and Rob about this decision, they got into a conversation with the two of them about their respective eternal destinies. So Rob turns to Jack and says, you know, Jack, I'm a little worried about you because you don't believe. I mean, it seems like Jason's going to be okay. He's, he's going to become a minister, but, but you don't believe, Jack. And Jack responds by saying, well, look, don't worry about me because if there is a God, I'm sure I'll be fine because I'm a good person. And look at you. You're not exactly the paragon of virtue or the model Christian. And, and Rob responds by saying, well, look, I might not go to church all that much, but I believe. And when I do, I even put a little money in the plate. You got to believe. And right there, all of this is just unfolding before my eyes. I should have gotten popcorn, just kind of like watch this, this conversation uh, take place right before me. But what those two people represented are the two views that we see represented by these two sons. Moralism on the one hand and libertinism on the other. Well, you got to believe and do the right things and then God is obligated to bless you and make your life go well regardless of whether or not you actually engage in a relationship with him or regardless of how, heart, how far away your heart might be from him. And the other says, well, look, i got to live my life my own way and if there is a God, God will accept me because God accepts everyone. Now, here's the thing. Most of us assume that Christianity is the same thing as moralism. You've got to believe and do the right things. And yet, if that were the case, then the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, would have loved Jesus. But they didn't. They didn't like the stories that Jesus told. Jesus' stories angered and upset them, whereas the tax collectors and the sinners flocked around him. And what's so strange is that it's not as if Jesus was saying, it doesn't matter how you live your life. He never said that. No, he lived an upright, ethical life. And yet... The irreligious people loved him, and the religious people hated him. And what's odd about that is that it is precisely the opposite in our churches. It's the opposite in our churches today. In his classic book, The Prodigal God, which is a detailed exposition of this parable, Tim Keller writes this. He says, 
Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders that Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. The licentious and the liberated, or the broken and marginal, avoid church. And that can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. So by telling this parable, Jesus reveals, not only are there two different kinds of people, but there's two different ways of getting lost. See, both of these approaches, moralism and libertinism, are wrong because both sons get lost in the parable in different ways. One gets lost by leaving home, but the other gets lost by staying home. One get, gets lost by breaking all the rules, the other one gets lost by keeping all the rules. One becomes alienated from his father because of the bad things that he's done, but the other becomes alienated from his father because of the good things that he's done for all the wrong reasons. So let's look at how both of these two sons get lost. The younger brother, like a secular, irreligious person, gets lost trying to be free. So a lot of people today would say, in order to be happy, I have to be free. And in order to be free, to do whatever I want, I have to cut loose from God or cut loose from moral standards or the expectations of others. But this ends in getting lost. Jesus begins the parable by telling a story that gets played out over and over and over again in the lives of people around the world. A young person becomes dissatisfied with life at home for one reason or another and decides that they have to break family ties and strike out on their own. And so the first thing that the younger brother does in verse 12 is he goes to his father and he says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, let me just remind you that this is not the kind of thing that you say to your parents. Now, of course, he's going to inherit the portion of the estate that is due to him at some point in time when his father's dead. But it's not something you say to your father while he's still alive. And so when he says, give me my share of the property that's coming to me, he's effectively saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. You mean nothing to me. I don't want anything to do with you. All I want is your money. All I want is the inheritance. Now, that would be rude in our own day and age, right? That would be even more shocking and disrespectful in an ancient patriarchal society like the one that Jesus lived in. And then what's so shocking and amazing, and Jesus' original listeners wouldn't have failed to see this, is that the father doesn't disown or disinherit the younger brother on the spot. He doesn't punch him in the teeth. Instead, he gives him what he wants and lets him go his way. The father is willing to absorb the shame as well as the sting of his son's rejection, and he lets him go his own way. Now, 
The culture of Jesus' day was based on primogeniture, which meant that the eldest son received twice the amount as anyone else when an inheritance was passed on. So we can assume that the elder brother would have received two-thirds of the estate and the younger brother would have received one-third of the estate. And so we're told then that the father divided his property between them. But the word that Luke uses there is not the word property, it's the word living. The father divided his living between them. It's the word bios, life. You see, the father is actually sacrificing now his own means of making a living. He, he, he's giving a third of the estate away, a third of the estate that he's been living on. But he gives it to the son. And the son immediately sells it and turns it into cash. Sells a third of the property, turns it into cash, and then leaves for a far country where he lives it up and then loses it all. And then famine strikes. And now he really finds himself in need. And so he has to hire himself out to a farmer who's raising pigs. And Jews considered pigs to be unclean animals. So what's a good Jewish boy in the first century doing taking care of pigs? He couldn't have sunk any lower. But What's worse is actually that he is treated as worse than an animal, worse than an unclean animal. He's living in the midst of a famine. The pigs have enough to eat, and yet he doesn't. He's starving. He longs, longs to be able to eat the pods that the unclean pigs were feeding on, but he wasn't allowed to. It was for them, not for him. He couldn't have sunk any lower. He, he gradually descends into a hell of his own making. He's lost. So the younger son represents those who, who blatantly rebel, blatantly go their own way, show no regard for God whatsoever. And younger brothers are easier to detect for that reason. They, they wear their sin on their sleeve. They're not trying to hide it. They have no interest in God. And oftentimes their need is that much more clear because it's blatant. But older brothers, the religious moralistic types, can also get lost. It's just much, much more difficult to detect. Because if the younger brother gets lost trying to be free, the older brother gets lost by trying to be good. But trying to be good for all the wrong reasons. The older brother tries to be good because he thinks that by being good, he can put God in his debt. He can manipulate God. It's a form of spiritual manipulation. If I do my end of the bargain, then you have to. You have to bless me. You have to make my life go well. You have to take me up into heaven when you die. And it doesn't matter whether or not I love you or care about you or want to engage in a relationship with you. It doesn't matter how far my heart is from you. You've got to do your duty. But you see, it just turns the relationship into drudgery all the way down. There's no joy, no love, no, no warmth, no intimacy in the moralistic person's relationship with God. And so on the outside, externally, they, they might be putting on a good show of religious observance, but, but internally, their heart is far from God. They're lost. But it's so much harder to see. It doesn't show up on the surface. But it's a much more dangerous form of lostness for that very reason because it is so much more subtle. 
So how do you know if you're an older brother? How do you know if you've got lost by trying so hard to be good? How do you know if you're lost when you've never left home, when you've kept all the rules, when you try to do the right thing? Well, one clear sign is indifference. The older brother is completely indifferent to the moment when his younger brother runs away. Doesn't say a word. Doesn't try to stop him. Doesn't go after him. Try to find him. But a second sign that you might be an older brother is anger. Anger simmering underneath the surface. Notice that when the older brother comes in from the field, presumably tired after a long day's work, he doesn't brighten at the sound of music and dancing. No, instead, Jesus tells us he gets angry. He asks the servant to tell him what's going on, and when he finds out, he gets angry and he refuses to join the party. But he's not just angry, he's bitter and resentful. When the father comes to speak with him, listen to what he says beginning in verse 29. He starts out by saying, look, And again, this doesn't quite come across in the English, but this is disrespectful. He doesn't say, Father. He says, look. Or perhaps it could be better translated, look, you. Look, you. All these years, I've been serving you. And the word there doesn't just mean serve. It means slaving away. All these years, I've been slaving away for you. I've never disobeyed your commands. But you never even gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, a goat was worth far less than a fattened calf. And so he feels like the father's been neglecting him. And now he's rewarding his younger brother for his bad behavior. But you see what he's upset about? On the surface, it might have seemed as if he was trying to live a good life. But in reality, he's no different from the younger brother. He, too, just wanted what his father could give. He didn't want a relationship with his dad. He just wanted his dad's stuff. And we do the same thing with God. We don't don't want a relationship with God. We just want what God can give. So he's angry, he's bitter, he's resentful, and then he's hateful. He doesn't even refer to his brother as a brother. Do you see that hateful phrase? He says, this son of yours has devoured your property and prostitutes. This son of yours, he might be your son, but he's nothing to me. I've always done what you wanted, but now I want to know, what about me? What's in it for me? That is what is ultimately driving and motivating him. And that's what happens to us. We don't want God for who he is. We just want whatever's in it for us. So one pursues the path of self-discovery, the other pursues the path of moral conformity, but they both get lost. So my question for you this morning is, which one are you? Are you the younger brother, blatantly breaking all the rules, or are you the older brother, keeping all the rules, supposedly, but for all the wrong reasons? Well, it is harder to detect whether or not you are an older brother. And that's why I think Flannery O'Connor, the novelist, is helpful here. She wrote a little short story called Wise Blood, and in it she uses this line. She says, the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. This is her way of describing a moralist. The way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. So you see, some people would say, well, I don't want to have to admit 
that I need Jesus to rescue me, to save me. I don't want to be saved by Jesus. Well, if that's the way that you feel, one of the best ways to try to avoid Jesus is by avoiding sin. If you live such a good life, externally on the outside, that no one could fault you with anything, well then, you don't need Jesus to rescue you. You can save yourself. And see, you see, it's just another form of pride. It's just another form of pride. You say, I don't want to be a sinner saved by grace. I want to save myself by the way in which I live my life. So the real test, though, of whether or not you're an older brother is to ask yourself, well, how do you respond to the younger brother types? What do you feel in your heart? What do you think? Are you thrilled when God showers his love and grace on people who've made an absolute mess of their lives? Or do you get resentful? Do you feel like God is rewarding them for their bad behavior? And are you starting to resent God? Because you think, look, I've always done the right thing, and what have you done for me? What's in it for me? Now, the the primary purpose of this parable is to say that there are two different kinds of people, two different ways of getting lost. But let me also just add that it is possible after we become a Christian, after we turn to Jesus in faith, that we can still feel like a younger brother or we could still feel like an older brother. And that may be many of us this morning. So for example, you might turn to Jesus in faith and and think that everything should go smoothly from that point on, but you'd run into trouble. And you might wonder why that is. C.S. Lewis described this sort of situation in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, when a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are corrected. He often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he's disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? And here's the answer. Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that's because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. So you see, after we put our trust in Jesus, we still might find ourselves in situations like the younger brother in a faraway country at the end of ourselves, but It may be that God allows us to get to that point in order to rouse us once again because he means to push us on to make us something new. But it's also possible that even after we put our faith in Christ that we start to feel like an older brother. And I would suggest that this happens far too often, that people become Christians and then they turn into older brother types. They really are Christians. They have been rescued from their lostness, but they're demonstrating older brother tendencies. And frankly, I think that happens to far too many of us. As a Christian, you might say, well, I'm responsibly doing my duty to God. And yet there's still no warmth, no intimacy in your relationship with God and no compassion or tenderness towards those who don't believe the same things that you do or who live life the same way. So we need to stop and ask ourselves which one we are. But this brings us to my third point. What do we actually do about it? There's these two different kinds of people, two different approaches to life, two different ways of getting lost. But there's only one way home. There's only one way home. 
no matter who you are, you have to be found. You have to be found. And that is what happens in the case of both brothers. The father goes out and finds them both. See, the younger brother finally hits bottom and he comes to himself. It's such a wonderfully evocative expression. He comes to himself through his harsh circumstances. He finally sees himself for who he really is and he begins to see his father rightly. He recognizes that his father was good to his hired servants. They've got more than enough bread to eat. So why is he starving on his own? And he gives up any hope of being able to return as a son, but he thinks his father is good-natured enough that perhaps he would take him back as a hired servant. And so he decides to go home and he practices his apology. And as far as he's concerned, he's going to need a good one. I was trying to think of a contemporary example that parallels this situation. This is what I came up with. Do you know what this situation is really like? This is like Prince Harry cutting ties with his father Charles and his older brother William. But you see, he hasn't just cut ties. He has brought shame on the royal family because he's published this expose. And in a similar way, the younger brother hasn't just cut loose from the family. He's brought shame on his dad. Everybody in the community would have known what he'd done and how he'd taken a, a third of the property while he was still alive and then lost it all on prostitutes. What does he think his dad is going to do when he shows up? But you see, nothing could have ever have prepared him for his father's response because little does he know all this time his father has just been scanning the horizon looking, waiting for his son to appear. And when he does, he runs to him. And every commentator will tell you that men in the ancient Near East never ran. It was undignified. But this dad doesn't care. He forgets dignity. And he runs to his son, throws his arms around him, and covers him in kisses before, before, not after, he even has a chance to say, I'm sorry. And then up until this point, the father has not said anything in the parable. Now he speaks for the first time. And what does he do? He cuts off all that talk about his son coming back as a hired servant. And he calls the servants, quick, bring the best robe. He's going to welcome his son like a respected guest. And who would have owned the best robe, the best robe in the house would have been the father's own robe. So he dresses him in his own robe and he calls for a ring to be placed on his finger. And more than likely, this would have been a signet ring that carried the family seal. By putting that ring on his son's finger, he's restoring him to his position as a son. But more than that, he's giving him the authority to act like a son again. And then he calls for shoes to be put on his feet. He's not going to walk around like a common laborer. No, he will walk around with dignity and respect as a son. And then they kill the fattened calf. They can't possibly eat that by themselves. This is a, a celebration that will require inviting neighbors and friends. But it's worth it. It's fitting because he says, this, my son, was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. But he doesn't just go out to find the younger brother. The father also searches for the older brother, and that's what we need to see Though the older brother is sulking like a child and refuses 
to enter into the music and the dancing, the father goes out to him too. He leaves the guests and he entreats him to change his heart, to change his attitude and to join the party. But the older brother, though he says he has never disobeyed his father's command, has missed the whole point because he never wanted a relationship with either one. All he wanted was the father's stuff. And so the father tenderly entreats him and reminds him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But do you realize how true that is? The remaining two-thirds of the state belongs entirely to the older brother. Everything the father has literally is the older brother's. It belongs to him. All that is mine is yours. What more could you want? You already have it all. What you don't have is me. And what you don't have is a relationship with your brother. Now, this has got to be one of the most beautiful, one of the most remarkable stories that anyone has ever told. And so just stop and think about that. Step back and wonder. What kind of a person was Jesus that he came up with stories like this? Gerald O'Collins once wrote this. He says that the parables that Jesus told and the images that he used led us into his heart and his mind. They let us see what he prayed and thought about and what he wanted to share with us. They convey his vision of the world and of all that God offers us. They show us how he saw reality and what, tr what he truly treasured. And above all, they disclose his deepest and richest answers to the questions, what is God like and what is God doing for us? This parable, more than any, any other, shows us what God is like and what he is doing for us. So how are we supposed to respond? Well, if you are a younger brother or a younger brother type, here's what I want you to see. Notice that the father runs to his son throws his arms around him and he embraces him before, not after, he even has a chance to say, I'm sorry. Which shows us that God's grace not only precedes, but it enables our repentance. Do you see that? God's grace not only comes first, but it makes our repentance possible. You see, if you know that God stands ready to forgive you and to embrace you, to take you back, that removes all fear. It, it makes it safe now to swallow your pride, to lower your resistance, to let down your defenses. And now you can admit who you are and what you've done. You can admit it all. There's no fear because you know that he stands ready to take you back. But if you're an older brother, I want you to see that it is much harder to recognize your form of lostness. This story ends with a cliffhanger. We don't actually know how the older brother responds. We don't know if he will respond to his father's entreaties by changing his heart and entering the party. And I think that's because that's what Jesus wants to impress upon us. If you are that older brother, stop and think. If you are lost in a way that is so much more difficult to detect, he wants us too to come to our senses and to undergo that change of heart because we hear him say, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. He doesn't just want you to do your duty. 
He wants you to find delight in your relationship with him. And in fact, it is his love that turns duty into delight. He's willing to give you everything. And in fact, he already has. You see, this parable is intended to tell us something, not only about ourselves and about God, but it also tells us something striking about Jesus. Edmund Clowney liked to tell the story of a U.S. soldier who went missing in action in Vietnam. And after the family could not get any official word from the government about his whereabouts, his older brother decided to fly to Vietnam at his own expense and at great risk to his own life, march through the jungle and the battlefields searching for his brother. And people on both sides of the conflict figured out who this person was, what his quest was, and they all kept him safe. No one harmed him. Many of them referred to him simply as the brother. That's the brother. And you see, that is what the older brother in this parable should have been like. As soon as he hears that his younger brother has left for a faraway country, he should have said to his dad, Dad, my brother's been a fool, but I'm going to go find him. And if he has squandered your inheritance to the point where it's all gone, and I suspect he has, then I will bring him back. I will bring him back and restore him to the family at my own expense. That's the kind of brother we need, and that is the kind of brother that Jesus is for us. Because you see, Jesus is not indifferent towards us. He's not angry, bitter, or resentful, or hateful. No, he comes after us. He left his father's home, and he went into the faraway country, the faraway country of our world looking for us. And he did it all at great cost. In the parable, when the father gives the robe and the ring and the shoes to his younger son, who did they ultimately belong to? The older brother. All that is mine is yours. When he gives them away, they belong to the older brother. But you see, Jesus voluntarily did that for us on the cross. He was stripped of his robe. He was stripped of his position and his dignity. And yet he did it all temporarily for you. So that he might dress you in his robe of righteousness. So that he might put a ring on your finger and sandals on your feet. So that he might restore to you his own position, his own dignity, his own authority. You see, at his own expense, he is restoring you to the family. Not as a servant but as an heir, as an heir alongside of him. And when you see that, that changes everything. See, whether you're a younger brother or an older brother type, when you see the depth of the Father's love for you and, and the lengths that Jesus will go to win you back, well, then that's what makes you want to love your Father in response. That's what makes you want to be like Jesus, your true older brother. So maybe so in all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that there's different kinds of people in the world, different approaches to life, but we all get lost one way or the other. Whether we're actively rebelling or resenting you and others right where we are, our heart is far from you because we want something other than you. We want what you can offer rather than who you are. And so we pray that you would enable us by your grace to hear your entreaty to us. We pray that you would soften our hearts, help us to put down our defenses, 
Help us to come home because you have found us by your grace. We ask that you would do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.